Hi, I'm Pastor Adam, and you're listening to the Orange United Methodist Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that wants to help you find your place in God's story. And we hope this sermon can guide you along that journey. Visit orangemethodist.org to find out more information about location, service times, upcoming events, and ways to give. We hope you enjoy. This morning, we continue our Oldies Playlist series for this summer, where we're exploring stories from the Old Testament. And we find ourselves today in Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 10 and 17 through 19. If you'd like to join in your Pew Bible, that's going to be page 32. I invite you to join in your own as well. Hear now God's word. Jacob settled in the land where his father lived as an alien the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, the 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age, and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And could not speak peaceably to him. Once Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, and then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. He had another dream and told it to his brother saying, look, I have had another dream. The sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what kind of dream is this that you have had? Shall we indeed come, I and your mother and your brothers and bow to the ground before you? So his father, so his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. The man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, you do indeed clothe us in colorful robes, and yet we tear them off of one another. God, you do inspire us with beautiful and vivid dreams, and we tell one another, surely not, just go back to sleep. God, you give us one another to care for one another, and we push one another into pits. We cast one another off. Oh, merciful God, forgive us, redeem us, teach us. Amen. Good morning once again. I am Pastor Corey, and we are grateful that God has called you to this place this morning. We are a community that is committed to helping people find their place in God's story. Not my story, not the world's story, not even Orange's story, God's story. And today we are considering the story of Joseph or at least part of Joseph's story. Joseph is an incredibly important figure in the history of Israel, and there are many places within his narrative that we could linger and 
dissect and decide how we can apply those to our lives. But we're going to stay here in Genesis 37 and linger for a little bit. And what we're going to observe is this tension that exists between Joseph, Joseph's brothers, and Jacob, their father. Now, Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So this family is incredibly influential in the history of the Jewish faith and our faith. And it may be hard for us to imagine the dynamics of such a large family. I mean, are there any among us who could relate to such an abundance and dysfunction of siblings? Are there any, any among us? Many of you may know, but if you do not, I'm one of 10 children, and I'm number seven. So this story hits me quite intimately. And some of the stories in the Bible, they can feel very far away because of culture or place or time. But sibling jealousy and generational trauma, family systems, well, those all make this story a tale as old as time. And for many of us, it is our story. In some ways, this story was written long before it played out among Joseph and his brothers, as we heard just read in the scripture. This story was etched into the heart of Jacob long before his 12 sons were even a thought in his mind. Because the fight of Jacob's life the wounds that haunted him and followed him every step of his journey, the brokenness and betrayal that disrupted his family and left no room for reconciliation with his father as he betrayed him on his deathbed. All of it was steeped in this jealousy Jacob himself felt toward his brother Esau. Jealousy that scripture tells us began actually in the womb. You see, Jacob and Esau are twins. Jacob was born second. And second, he would always be in his father's eyes. He missed the inheritance, the position, the power, and it broke Jacob. He could not accept it. He was devastated, and he was so hurt by the love he witnessed between Esau and their father. He was devastated by what he thought he didn't have. And hurt people, what do they do? They hurt people. Sounds cliche, but in this story, it is incredibly accurate. What does Jacob do? Well, he steals not only Esau's birthright through deception and manipulation, he also steals Esau's blessing. And then, out of fear of retribution, he runs. He runs from the pain of facing the mess he's made. He runs to get away from Esau, and he strikes out on his own. Jacob's jealousy costs him his family of origin. It costs him his belonging, his connection. For what? What does he gain? He gets this moment of feeling, this fleeting moment, a feeling that for one second, Esau doesn't get to stand quite as tall as he does. And he goes his own way. He meets his wives and he begins his own family, always haunted by what he did. Endless questions of what might have been, what could have been. And we know as the story progresses that eventually Jacob and Esau do meet again. 
Jacob is terrified. He is sure that Esau will enact the revenge that has been escalating in Jacob's mind, and he believes Esau's mind all these years. And yet, what Jacob wanted to rob Esau of, he actually couldn't. Esau still stood taller than Jacob ever would as he offered him forgiveness and welcome and connection. Despite the betrayal, Esau's character prevented him from ever losing what Jacob meant to steal. Now that's its own sermon for another day. But the story of Esau and Jacob, it's one that should hit us deeply. Jacob is the one who cannot get anything right. His jealousy, fear, betrayal, deceit, manipulation, they characterize his life. And yet it is Jacob, not Esau, who becomes the father of Israel. His sons become the 12 tribes, the second born. God really does mean to redeem our sorry selves. And you would think that this moment of meeting Esau was transformative enough that it would set Jacob on a new path, that he would do right by his family forevermore, that he'd be a new man. He even gets a new name. He goes from Jacob to Israel in this story of reconciliation. But we just are not that smart or self-aware. Of course, Jacob is quick to forget what led to so much pain in his own life, what led to so much fear and so much lost time and disconnection. And he cannot see his own unresolved woundedness. Esau refused to play the part that Jacob wanted him to once again by not retaliating. I'm sure that reinforced some old wounds. Esau always gets it right. He was always dad's favorite. Of course, he'd be the better man in this moment. And Jacob, whether consciously or subconsciously, he lets those wounds of his upbringing bleed onto his children. Instead of refusing to participate in the family systems and toxicity that harmed him, he decides to perpetuate it. In fact, he encourages it. Jacob, of all people, chooses a favorite son. The very thing that broke his own heart. Verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other children. He does the very thing that controlled and hindered his life. The thing that imprisoned him and denied him peace and connection. And he just can't see it. That jealousy among his own children is fed and reinforced by Jacob. And the consequences of this perpetuated trauma are even more damaging than anything Jacob ever did. This generational trauma doesn't just lead to a split or a rift. This jealousy leads to death. It leads to at least a presumed death. Jacob's other sons are so jealous of Joseph's belovedness that they believe killing him is somehow the proper response. It is an attempt at immediate relief from their own prison of feeling second best, neglected, left out. 
It's an attempt. They kill Joseph as if they could somehow eliminate him and eliminate those feelings. So in verse 17, Joseph's brothers saw him from a distance, and before he came near, they conspired to kill him. His own brothers. The crimes they charged Joseph with in their hearts, arrogance. He thought he was better than them. Favoritism. Jacob gave him a coat of many colors to distinguish Joseph. They believed they could soften their own pain by harming another. They could soften their own pain by causing someone else's pain, by eliminating him from their world. They could cut off the thing that made them feel this way. They could argue they were creating a boundary to protect themselves. Boundaries are good. But when boundaries are created through violence and abuse and harm, and even murder, those are not boundaries that are healthy. Those are sinful means. What they couldn't see is that the violence of their actions wasn't at all healing. It was debilitating, and it left a gaping wound on their entire family for 22 years. 22 years, that's how long, how much time had elapsed between Joseph's death and when they discover him very accidentally while seeking out food during a famine. Joseph's unknown fate and his assumed death by his father Jacob, I imagine, overshadowed so many moments in their family's life that should have been filled with joy and beauty and hope and celebration. You see, jealousy controlled the first part of Jacob's life, and grief characterized the second part. Every family has a gaping wound or wounds. If yours doesn't, you are the exception and you should be so very grateful. Mine has plenty and I won't bleed on you today, but no, I, I feel the pain of this story deeply. And if you have more in common with Joseph and his brothers than you'd like, hear me say, I am so sorry. There's so much tragedy here, so much pain, so much sadness, so much anger of what must have been lost, of what could have been and what should have been 22 years. And I bet some of those brothers can't even remember all the details that led up to that fateful day. Some of them probably can't even remember why they thought Joseph was so annoying to begin with. I have a girlfriend whose father doesn't talk to his brother. I asked her why they didn't talk. She said he can't remember. But here we are left in the rubble of disaster that simply didn't have to be this way. It's a tragic story. It's a familiar story. This morning, I want to play another clip. I've been with y'all for several years now. I've never really used movie clips, but this is the second time in a row. So I'm going to invite you to turn your eyes toward the screen as we watch this short clip. I love this moment, not just because Kevin strikes a terrifying resemblance to my four-year-old, but <laughs> I love this moment of mutual confession. Kevin confides in his neighbor that he's been kind of a pain lately, and his neighbor confesses his own brokenness, that he and his son have this long-standing silence because of an argument that transpired years before. 
So they share their fears, and then wisdom having no age, Kevin encourages his neighbor to reach out to his son, to risk rejection for the possibility of reconciliation. It's a raw and relatable moment for probably most of us. There's a lot of hurt shared on that pew between Kevin and his neighbor, and there is an immense amount of pain between Joseph and his brothers and their father. And for most of us, we just power through the hurt. We repress it, and we have to get on with our lives. We adjust to accommodate to the hurt, to make room for it. We go to our granddaughter's dress rehearsal to avoid seeing our son. We send a card and a check instead of calling because it's just too risky. We simply live with it. We live with the pain and the anger and the sadness, the separation. There are repercussions when we refuse to seek treatment for our wounds. They fester. They get infected. They continue to bleed, and to be honest, they start to stink. And even if we aren't aware of the ways it impacts us, other people can smell it, and other people can see it. Now, I can't promise you an ending like the old man, where we witness he and his family reconcile on Christmas Day with his son's family in tow. And I can't promise that after 22 years, you will accidentally stumble upon your middle-aged brother while searching out food in a famine. What I can promise you is that there is another source of healing that does not require anyone else's participation. Although when it happens, it is sweet, but it doesn't always. And that does not give us permission to leave our own wounds undressed and untreated. We are those who live with hope in a future. And we have a promise. We have another way of being in this world. Healing is scary and it's risky and it's hard work. It's not immediate and it may not look exactly like we want it to. But I promise that seeking healing is better than the pain you are feeling right now. Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers at the end of this story, it is an example of extravagant mercy. And it foreshadows the same kind of extravagant mercy that Jesus offers to us, that Jesus offers to all those who find themselves wounded and hurt and rejected who were born into dysfunction and who choose to perpetuate it. Jesus offers all of us that healing, a place of wholeness and belonging in God's kingdom. As Pastor Sarah preached about last week, you know, that identity that says, you are not who anyone else says you are. You're not your family. You're not your cruelest enemy. You're not your most toxic relationship. You are not that you are beloved. And when you receive that truth and allow it to replace the generational lies and the family dysfunction you may have endured, well, church, there is freedom and hope and healing to be found. And not only that, but Jesus longs for us to live out that healing for the rest of the world. Wounds can be sutured and they can heal but they often leave a scar. Jacob knew that better than anyone. The scar that's a reminder of where we need to set our boundaries in order to maintain our sacred health. 
That scar is a reminder of the story that is now our own. And it is a constant reminder that healing is possible. Now, today's message may have been a bit heavy. It might have hit you in a way you weren't expecting. And it may have left you with more questions than answers. And you may be thinking right now, I just can't fix what's broken. It's too many years, too many things. I can't possibly forgive them, and I don't think they'll forgive me. I do not want anyone to mishear me or to misinterpret what I'm saying. Families are complicated, and trauma is complicated, and we are not responsible for anyone else's actions or for fixing anyone else's soul. What I am sharing with you is that I believe there is a path of healing for us regardless of anyone else's actions. That there is a hope and a promise, and that promise is given to us by the one who knows us better than anyone in this world, the one who longs to hold us, heal us, and give us abundant life. Abundant life. If you want to talk about today's message more, know that your pastors are here. I'm here. Pastor Sarah's here, Pastor Adam is here, anytime. Your Stephen ministers are here and are available. But know that no matter what, you are not alone in your woundedness. You're here, you belong, you have a place, and you are worthy of wholeness. I wanna leave you this morning with a prayer that's also a blessing, entitled, Blessing for a Broken Vessel, by the Reverend Jan Richardson. Receive this prayer. Do not despair. You hold the memory of what it was to be whole. It lives deep in your bones. It abides in your heart that has been torn and mended a hundred times. It persists in your lungs that know the mystery of what it means to be full to be empty, to be full again. I'm not asking you to give up your grip on the shards you clasp so close to you, but to wonder what it would be like for those jagged edges to meet each other in some new pattern that you have never imagined, that you have never dared to dream. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Please join us again next week. In the meantime, you can find us online at orangemethodist.org.